0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. When you think of Illinois, what comes to mind? Chicago? Well, it's definitely in the state, and as much as I love my Chicagoland listeners, there are 10 million residents not living in the Windy City. Cornfields? Well, yes, that's true. It's one of the most enduring symbols for us who live further south. Coal? Yes, not so well-known, but Illinois has long been mined for coal and it is estimated there is more fossil fuel energy under the state than in the entire Arabian Peninsula. There's a different side of Illinois many people don't know about. Get off the beaten track, out into some of the hills and forests, and you will start to hear some terrifying and at the same time engrossing tales that would match just about any state in the Union for spine-chilling and bizarre factors. Tonight I'm going to give you a veritable broadside of Illinois tales to enjoy during the scary season. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope you're happy, healthy, and well wherever you are. I hope that you've had an enjoyable last few weeks, as I say, as we get into October and it starts to cool down in the Northern Hemisphere. Here in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, it starts to warm up a bit as we head into our spring, but uh, yeah, we've had a bit of a polar snap the last few days, so Uh, I'm currently hunkered down in the uh, studio, in Tower Studios, chilled to the bone, but uh, no place I'd rather be than bringing these excellent tales to you on this uh, wonderful evening. So, as I say, I hope that everyone is well. I hope that you're all doing well. You're safe and sound. Thank you so much, anyone listening to my voice, for taking the time to tune into this program. It really does mean the world to me. Now, traditionally, as I say, you know, I'll go through a few specialized shout-outs for some longtime supporters of the program, but with these Halloween tales, I'm trying to just truncate that a bit and keep it short and sweet. So as I say, anyone everywhere in the world, all of my listeners all over the US, France, Europe, UK, Australia, New Zealand, just anyone anywhere in the world listening to my voice, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to what I've got to say, and I hope that you're really enjoying the program. Now, in having said that, as I say, if you're wondering how you can support the program, you can go and like and rate the program on any you know anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Uh, look, I'm going to be honest. I basically use Apple iTunes most of the time or Apple Podcasts when I go listening to programs because it's on my iPhone. It's easy to keep track of it. So I don't know how all of the programs are. I'm sure some of them you can't rate. You can't review the shows. So... Uh, I fully understand you might go somewhere that you can't do that. So, what else can you do to support the program? Well, one of the key things you can do is if you like what you hear, if you like what I do, you can tell a friend, you know, just tell someone else out there, hey, check out this crackpot, you know, down there in New Zealand doing these shows about all this odd stuff, you know, pass it along. You know, you can go over and follow the Paranormal Sun on Instagram. I've got an Instagram page. You can follow the Paranormal Sun and like the Facebook page. I've got a Facebook group set up. I've also got the website uh, www.theparanormalsun.com. So any of those things you can do. If you feel so generous that you'd like to donate something to the show, you can throw some, you know, throw a few dollars in my PayPal link on the Paranormal Sun website you can also support the program on patreon so there are a lot of different things that you can do if you like what you hear if you like the programs that I put out and if you're wondering you know what can I do By by all means those are some of the things that you can do to support what I do and support the program it really does help and as I say at the end of the day I do this for you the listeners for my audience I enjoy doing a lot of the research in that but you know look it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's not that I don't enjoy bringing it to you folks, but it is a lot of work compiling everything, doing the the program, editing it, you know, doing the audio each week. So your kind and positive, you know, feedback to me and just telling me that you appreciate the shows I do, some of the subjects that you like, suggesting subjects that you, you know, may want me to do in future, all of that really helps keep my motivation going and really helps me you know, know that you're enjoying what I'm doing. So, by all means, you know, get get in touch with me. You can email me at theparanormalsun at gmail as well if you've got any suggestions or any topics you'd like me to cover, or if you've got any Halloween stories, any ghost stories, anything like that that you would like me to cover over, send them through. I'll read them on the air. So, with all that being said, folks, I just want to explain to you a little bit about what's going on with the episode for you know. Illinois, quote unquote. So for those of you who haven't listened to all of the Back Archive or don't know me all that well, I spent some of my formative years in the state of Illinois, specifically in the central part of Illinois, but I've been all over the state. And I had this idea that for Halloween, you know, I wanted to bring you some stories, you know, uh, things that uh, some may say they're urban legends. Others may say there's more truth to them than that. And I wanted to bring you some really good stories and kind of bring you a gambit from the state of Illinois. And my plan was to kind of cap it off with some of my own personal ghost stories. But the truth is, folks, as I started digging into this, as so often is the case with JT and this program, man, I'll tell you, did I ever go down a rabbit hole, okay? So I gathered somewhere between about thirteen to 15,000 words and about 30 subjects so you know i very quickly made a decision that i'm going to have to split this up it's just too much i don't really want to drown you with a nearly three hour program probably and on top of that uh, anchor does have upload limits that i have strained in the past so rather than trying to rush and cram it all in and not get through the things that i want to get through i've decided to split this into two so you're going to get half tonight and then you're going to get a special Halloween bonus episode and on that episode, I will be telling you some of my paranormal encounters specifically in and around Illinois, some of the spooky things and that, I mean, it's nothing too, you know, earth shattering, but there are a few in there that, you know, I definitely experienced something that in my humble opinion, uh, was otherworldly. And then I've also got a few excellent stories, that have come through from some listeners to the program and I appreciate very much them submitting those to me so you'll get a special bonus episode that I plan to either release on the 30th or the 31st of October so either the Friday or the Saturday I haven't quite decided yet and then the first week of November, we'll go back and we'll have part two of the Illinois program. So I just very quickly wanted to give you a bit of a rundown because there's been a change from the initial plan. It, it was just, look, there's so many awesome stories and I found so many excellent resources that I don't want to, you know, kind of half-ass this and, and, and leave it not that well done. So I hope you understand and I hope that you will really enjoy some of these stories, it's some excellent ones, you know. So, you know, with all that being said, uh, again, look, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for the support. Thank you to my friends over at the Quite Unusual podcast. Thank you so much for supporting me. For those of you who don't know, they're in the Chicago land area. So, you know, they are going to do their best to also help promote these episodes about Illinois to get a little bit more out there as far as some of the, the myths and legends of Illinois for other people to listen to and hopefully get some of the people in Illinois interested in things they haven't heard of before. You know, again, as well, just to the Old 77 podcast, again, you know, these guys do a lot of uh, things to support this program, and so I just want to say thanks to Scott, Matt, and Dave at the Old 77 podcast. So with all that having been said, folks, uh, as I say, you know, stay tuned. It's going to be an exciting few weeks. Uh, You know, you're going to get... Uh, bonus episode. I don't know quite how long that will be, you know, but it will probably be at least a half an hour, I would say, with the stories that I've got and some of the different uh, locations where I lived and some of the things that went down, and then also some things that were sent in by listeners. So I think that you will really enjoy some of these. Now with that all out of the way, folks, uh, I'm going to be getting into the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who don't know what the News of the Damned is, uh, maybe some new listeners, Charles Fort was one of the real founding fathers of what we would call the modern paranormal categories, things like sea serpents, flying saucers, uh, you know, UFOs, and all kinds of mysteries. Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering all of these bits of information from magazines and newspapers all over the world, Categorizing them and then publishing them in books so that you and I and all those that came after Mr. Fort could then, you know, read through some of these different cases and find, you know, some really odd ones, but also a lot of correlation in these cases. Now, anyway, Mr. Fort always described anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damned data. Therefore, as an homage to Charles Fort, I always title this new subject, you know, this segment as the news of the damned, and I'll always give you, you know, roughly three to five articles. In this case, I've got four tonight as the articles, few of them are quite short. So I've got you four and these have all, you know, these all definitely fall in the paranormal and, you know, unexplained areas and Fortiana. And also I picked a few, especially for the Halloween season, as I say. So with that all being said, I'll start with the first article. So the first one here, folks, is from the independent.co.uk, which is obviously a United Kingdom publication. And this one is titled, Birmingham Mansion named most haunted site in UK. Visitors report seeing a former housekeeper in a green dress sat in a chair. And this was from Adrian Hearn. It came out Thursday, the 31st of October of 2019. So obviously, just after last Halloween, and before all the joy that has been 2020 for most of us. So it says, a 17th century mansion where a young woman was kept in a cell by her father and a servant also killed himself has been named the UK's top haunted historic site. Several spirits have reportedly been spotted at Aston Hall in Birmingham, including Dick the houseboy who hanged himself after being accused of stealing. Visitors have also reported seeing a former housekeeper sitting in a chair while wearing a distinctive green dress. Aston Hall, a Jacobian property, is also said to home the Grey Ghost, believed to be Mary Holt, a daughter of the fearsome owner who was locked up in a cell at the property for 16 years after she tried to run away with a servant. It has been named the UK's most haunted heritage site in a list compiled by one of the country's leading team of paranormal researchers. Spectrum Paranormal Investigations teamed up with the National Lottery for the Halloween list to celebrate its 25th anniversary of supporting heritage sites. Dean Williams from Spectrum Paranormal Investigations said, Halloween is a time of year when many people get to enjoy their fascination with ghostly tales and paranormal experiences at historic sites across the country. In fact, anyone armed with a camera and some sound equipment can enjoy being a ghost investigator for the night. Beckingham Place Park and mansion in Lewisham, London, was second on the list. Over the years, people have supposedly spotted the presence of previous visitors and residents, including soldiers and schoolchildren, while a hooded ghost has been seen floating on a lake. Castle Espy Wetland Centre in Northern Ireland was third, where a Victorian girl wrapped in a shawl has been seen carrying a baby in one hand and flickering lantern in another. John McCollum, Castle SB learning manager said you can hear her crying out for help as she wanders the woods looking for shelter and warmth. However, when you approach her, she slips behind a tree and disappears. Other sites which made the list include famous venues, such as the Tower of London, Tamworth Castle, and, uh, I can't pronounce that one folks, Lan Fa Manor. So that's Welsh. So that's why I butchered that so badly. But yeah, folks, obviously, you know, there have been allusions to the UK being called before these haunted isles. So it should be as, you know, should be of no shock to us that there are so many haunted places in the UK. I mean, you've got settlement that went back well before the Romans, many thousand years ago. I, I know that they've found, you know, settlement in the UK at least... 12 to fifteen thousand years ago so it should be no shock that you would have things like this there's some really famous tales that i've heard before you know there was one for example where a man was working in a cellar and he saw these roman soldiers a roman legion basically marching through the house and one of the real telling signs of it was that they were cut off at their you know at their knees roughly because that's where the street surface would have been you know, back in the Roman days. So again, you know, if anywhere you're going to hear some of these ghost tales, it's definitely going to be the UK. And again, just in time for Halloween. So on to the next one here, folks. And this one has definitely got a Halloween slant to it. And this one is from Coast coasttocoastam.com, which again, many of you longtime listeners of the program know. I glean a lot of information from there. And this one is titled, Cursed Artifacts Return to Pompeii. And this is from timbinol so uh, as i say you know timbinol is the website guru over there and generally anything from that website will be attributed to timbinol several objects from the ruins at pompeii were recently mailed to a travel agency in italy by a canadian woman who explained that she had stolen them 15 years ago and now wished to rid herself of what she believes is a curse attached to the artifacts among the pilfered items that were reportedly returned by the regretful tourist Were a pair of mosaic tiles two pieces of a vase and a portion of a wall reflecting on her decision to take the artifacts the woman mused that i was young and stupid and i wanted to have a piece of history that nobody had however upon returning home the woman's luck took a turn for the worse and over the course of the next 15 years she had two bouts with cancer and her family suffered serious financial hardship How and why she ultimately determined that her troubles were related to the stolen Pompeii pieces is uncertain, but the tourist was convinced that the ill-gotten mementos were to blame. I stole a piece of history that had lots of negative energy inside, she wrote in a letter which was included with the returned objects. Please take these artifacts back so I can do the right thing and mend the mistake I've made, she pleaded. I don't want to pass this curse on to my family, my children, or myself anymore. The stolen pieces have since been handed over to officials at the archaeological park of pompeii where they will likely go on display as part of a showcase of other artifacts which were taken and returned by tourists sharing eerily similar stories of bad luck unsurprisingly pompeii is not the only site plagued by sticky fingered visitors who have taken objects and later regretted the decision back in july the colorado parks and wildlife department received a package containing a rock which was stolen from one of their parks and was subsequently perceived as cursed by the man who had been given the sizable stone by a friend. And in March, an Israeli man, with fears that the apocalypse was near, sought to absolve himself ahead of time by returning a relic which he had pocketed from a national park. Well, folks, look, this is a theme in many places in the world. I can tell you, for example, in Hawaii, there are several sites where people will take stones and later really regret doing it and i can't remember the i think it was i think it's volcanic national park but you know one of these national parks is you know it's they've had thousands of cases of this happening it's also happened in other places like Madol, which you know i've done a program on there have been cases of people taking stones and later sending them back saying look um i don't want any more to do with this and there are many other places around the world these sacred type sites where People, you know, for whatever reason, it just seems that whether people are manifesting it themselves or there's actually something to it as far as the item being cursed, there's definitely a negative correlation with keeping these objects. So again, you know, I find it interesting. And if you find yourself at one of these places, think twice before you grab a souvenir. Now on to the third article here, which is also from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is titled, Cattle mutilations reported in Oklahoma. And there was a case uh, a few weeks ago of one in Oregon and I didn't cover it over folks. So this has been going on more and more in the US again. It's coming to the forefront. So this says a pair of calves in Oklahoma are the latest victims of the mysterious cattle mutilation phenomenon. And their owner is understandably outraged by their bizarre demise. The unsettling incident reportedly took place at some point this past weekend On Cody Zimmerman's ranch in the city of Lawton. While walking the property on Sunday to check on his animals, the man was aghast to discover two of his calves dead on the ground with their hearts, tongues, and genitals removed in what appears to be a particularly unnerving manner. A seasoned cattle rancher, Zimmerman has never seen anything like the gruesome scene and expressed disgust over what had happened. Observing that neither animal appeared to have been shot, He theorized that a local TV station, sorry, to a local TV station, that horrifyingly, they were cut open while they were alive, and mused that it's just a real bad deal and evil. Noting that the livestock at the farm had been handed down to him by his father, and thus the calves have something of a sentimental value, Zimmerman has offered a $2,500 reward to anyone who can help solve the case. However, local authorities cautioned that solving the caper will likely be quite the challenge. Comanche County Sheriff Kenny Stradley, who is already investigating a similar case from June, explained that the perpetrators in both instances left no evidence behind and it's almost impossible to catch these people unless you drive up on them and catch them in the act. As such, he asked the public to contact police if they see somebody driving around slow and acting suspicious near a ranch so that we can check out who they are and hopefully unmask the culprits behind the cattle mutilations. Well, look folks. Again, on the Paranormal Sun, I try to leave the conclusion gathering to you. But to me, if people think that the majority of these cattle mutilation cases are, you know, quote unquote, people, you know, practicing black magic or demonic ceremonies, running around with butcher knives, cutting up these cattle, um, no. And law enforcement may not say that to you publicly, but behind the scenes, time and time again, they've said that there are so many things about the majority of these cases that baffle them and that they can't explain and it it really unsettles them, you know. Imagine being a police officer and you are called upon by your community to protect and serve and you come across something that you can't explain, you can't understand how it happened with a, you know, within rational reality of day-to-day life and You know, knowing that you now have to protect the citizens from something that you can't explain and you can't control. So, again, cattle mutilations are something that a lot of people poo-poo. I would advise the people who poo-poo them to look into it deeper. Yes, there are going to be cattle mutilations that are caused by predators. But there are many cattle mutilations that occur that are still unexplained and very difficult to explain with our current level of technology in you know this world on this earth as we know it it doesn't mean that it's necessarily aliens from zeta reticuli there are other explanations that could be out there but i'm just saying it's not you know it's not people out there hoaxing and perpetrating things like this it's very easy to tell i was a butcher for years i cut meat for a living It's very easy to tell when something's been cut with a knife and a butcher knife and things like that versus when it's been cut with a scalpel or laser or other things. And time after time in these cases, they've found that there are things like the red blood cells in the flesh actually are fused. So it wasn't cut with a knife. It was fused under heat and yet there is no burning to the cattle. So it's a fascinating case. Maybe one day I'll cover over cattle mutilation. Again, as I say, I'm sure that there are many of them that are not that. But again, those get weeded out pretty quickly, especially in these areas where they have them consistently and the law enforcement see them a lot. And if you want to know more about cattle mutilation before or if I get around to a show, as I say, Linda Moulton Howe is really the person who blew the lid off of all this in the 70s and 80s. She has a series, uh, she has a documentary called A Strange Harvest. That's an excellent watch if you want to see it. It is a bit old, but you know, she really took her time to go through it properly. She's also got, you know, you can look up Linda Moulton Howe or Earth Files, and you'll find out all the information that you need to know. Now on to our fourth and final article, and this one I couldn't leave out, folks, because I saw the byline for this the other day and i thought wow this is interesting so i wanted to make sure i covered it uh this comes from popular mechanics and please anyone out there who might get offended by this i know politics as i say i try and leave them off the show and you know i know they're divisive but don't think that this is my byline this is the byline from the article so this article is from popular mechanics as i say and it's titled trump acknowledges ufos threatens aliens with military action and it says there's so much we need to unpack here and this was by Kyle Mizokami and this uh, so it says that President Donald Trump when asked about a new Pentagon task force for studying UFOs replied that he would look into it and then began boasting about the power of the US military some observers saw this as Trump touting his funding of the Department of Defense while others saw it as a threat to extraterrestrial beings In an interview on Sunday, Fox News anchor Maria Bartiromo asked Trump, can you explain why the Department of Defense has set up a UFO task force? Are there UFOs? Well, I'm going to have to check on that, Trump replied. I mean, I've heard that. I heard that two days ago, so I'll check on that. I'll take a good, strong look at that. Trump then went on to talk about the U.S. military. I will tell you this, we have now created a military the likes of which we have never seen before. In terms of equipment, the equipment we have, the weapons we have, and hope to God we never have to use it, but have created a military the likes of which nobody has. Nobody has ever had. Russia, China, they're all envious of what we had, all built in the USA. We built it all, $2.5 trillion. And as far as the other question, I'll check on it. I heard about it two days ago, actually. In August, the Pentagon established an official task force to investigate UFO sightings following c- confirmed UFO sightings by USA, USA Naval pilots between 2004 and 2014. And again, I've covered those over on the program before, folks. The Pentagon's Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAP, task force will investigate the sightings of UAPs, also known as UFOs. It's the first official U.S. government program affiliated with UFO research since a 2000s-era unit that analyzed unmanned aerial vehicles and other UAPs lost its funding in 2012, even though multiple sources confirmed with Popular Mechanics that the unit remained active in secrecy after its shuttering. So what exactly was Trump getting at in, in this interview? One interpretation is that Trump riffed on the possible threat of aliens to talk about how much he had done for the U.S. military. Indeed, the president has spent approximately $2.5 trillion on defense, though there's been no real increase in America's overall military strength and number of weapons. The other possibility? This was Trump d- directly threatening aliens, or more likely the foreign governments behind the UAPs that the Pentagon is investigating with military action. In August 2017, Trump used similar wording to threaten North Korea, stating North Korea will be met with fire, fury, and frankly power, the likes of which the world has never seen before. If Trump did consider aliens a threat, that would likely explain the sudden rush to establish the Space Force, the newest U.S. military branch. It's not clear, though, why Trump would choose Fox News to threaten aliens with the power of the U.S. military. So could the Pentagon fend off a UFO attack? It seems unlikely. Even America's most high-tech military hardware, including the F-22 Raptor fighter, USS Ford-class aircraft carriers, and the thousands of nuclear weapons that make up our strategic nuclear forces, would almost certainly be powerless against any technology advanced enough to travel between the stars. Consider the progress in weapons technology made by mankind over the last 200 years. Military forces of the 1820s, complete with muskets, horses, and field guns, would stand no chance against the armed forces of the 2020s. Alien civilizations could easily be thousands or even millions of years more advanced than mankind, with weapons that might seem miraculous to us. The unfortunate truth is Earth Earth is likely ripe for the taking by any alien race technologically advanced enough to travel here. While it's fun to speculate on wildly unrealistic scenarios, here's the bigger debate. Is there really something here, or did Trump answer two different questions, one of which was never actually asked? If anyone on this planet knows the real truth about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, it would be the president of the U.S. So what else might Trump someday reveal? So, look, folks, um, again, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And again, I try not to divulge too much of what my personal opinions and thoughts are on this program because i like you to... Form your own opinions but as they said there is a lot here to unpack number one from what i read there i don't really see trump you know quote unquote threatening aliens number two i don't see any other military power in the world as far as known military power meaning russia china north korea having technology that would be that far ahead of the u.s military Frankly, I don't think anyone on this earth, any country on earth has got anything that holds a candle to the U.S. military. Now, you know, there are countries that could put up a good fight. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is with leading edge technology, I don't think anyone has got stuff more advanced than the U.S. military. Um, With that being said, they're absolutely, absolutely right. I think if someone has come here from outer space. The odds of us doing anything against them, including with nuclear weapons, uh, are very slim. Look into all the UFO cases, and I will cover some on this program at some point, of them flying over and shutting down nuclear missiles in the silos. Look, folks, if if something out there in this universe, with you know, hundreds or thousands of years ahead of us with advanced technology, if they want us destroyed, we will be destroyed, okay? The only way that we are not going to be destroyed is if there is an equally powerful or more powerful force protecting us. But we do not have anything, in my humble opinion, that can defend us from these things. Anyway, it's quite interesting, and I do find it fascinating that as we are getting closer and closer to the election, there have been several instances now of Trump talking about UFOs. And again, not to get too far down the political rabbit hole, There have been theories in the past that if trump thought he was going to lose the election that he may disclose at least partially the fact that ufos are here that they're aliens or whatever else they may be to try and sway you know people from voting him out of office again i'm not getting into the political weeds here i'm just saying some of the things that have gone around on the internet and I, I think that there are many governments on this planet that if you said to them, well, all you've really got to do to get reelected or get into power is release these files, if they thought that they could get away with it, if they don't have a gun being held to their head by their military or some other force we don't know about, I do think that we would have seen it happen by now. I definitely think there's more information out there to be released. I also disagree with what he said in the article, oh, the president of the U.S. would surely know about UFOs. Um, No, that's not how black projects and black budget type things work. Okay, During World War II, for example, people often talk about the Wunderwaffe and the German secret technology. Adolf Hitler was often brought into the know on these projects very late in their life. He may have an inkling that there would be these weapons that, you know, We're going to possibly cause all kinds of mass destruction. I bring this up because people always talk about how far ahead of the West the Nazi scientists were. So, you know, in a totalitarian state, Hitler didn't necessarily know everything that was going on. So imagine what goes on in a military industrial complex like what the U.S. has built up over the last 60 to 70 years. Imagine what secrets there are out there that... No one in government, as far as an elected official, probably knows about, and I would highly doubt that the president would know about it. He may know some of the puzzle, but I don't think Trump or any previous president, barring maybe, maybe Bush because he was a CIA director, or Eisenhower or Truman, I don't think anyone since has really known kind of in-depth what's going on. Nixon also may have known a lot more than the others. But anyway... It is fascinating and we will continue to watch this now that's the news of the damned for this evening i hope that you've enjoyed those articles as always there will be links in the show notes now just one note as i get into these tales from the state of illinois i realize a lot of you don't know Illinois all that well, you know where it is roughly, but you might not know where a lot of these small towns where some of these tales come from are. So I'm going to preface each of these stories by giving you a rough geographical location within the state of where this town or where this area is where these things are occurring. So with all that being said, folks, get yourself your favorite drink or your favorite snack, sit down, relax, while I take you through these 15 astounding tales from the land of Lincoln. So when I mentioned things synonymous with Illinois, I left out one for good reason, Abraham Lincoln. Yes, although not from Illinois, he certainly helped give the state a poster boy who was mostly admired, especially after his tragic death in 1865. Now you all know that I'm not just going to come on to the Paranormal Sun and discuss the life and times of the 16th President of the US. I'm sure some of you, however, would know that there is indeed some tie-in with Lincoln to the subject matter I cover on this program. Mary Todd Lincoln, his wife, practiced spiritualism in the White House. She first turned to spiritualism as a tool for processing her grief after the death of her second youngest son Willie, or William, in February of 1862. However, I have a much more personal tale about Lincoln to share with you. On April the 14th, 1865, William Crook, one of Lincoln's bodyguards, began his shift at 8 a.m. He was to have been relieved by John Frederick Parker at 4 p.m., but Parker was several hours late. Lincoln had told Crook that he had been having dreams of his being assassinated for three straight nights. Crook tried to persuade the president not to attend the performance of a play, Our American Cousin, at Ford's Theater that night, or at least to allow him to go along as an extra bodyguard, but Lincoln said he had promised his wife that they would go. As Lincoln left for the theater, he turned to Crook and said, Goodbye, Crook. Before, Lincoln had always said, Good night, Crook, Crook later recalled. It was the first time that he neglected to say good night to me, and it was the only time that he ever said goodbye. I thought of it at that moment, and a few hours later, when the news flashed over Washington that he had been shot. His last words were so burned into my being that they can never be forgotten. That is far from the strangest or most paranormal thing you'll hear me cover tonight. Just remember that some of what you will hear is pure supposition. Don't think for a moment that these are my personal experiences or that I support them all. As always, I leave the decision on what to believe up to you, my amazing audience. The first one, folks, comes from Chicago. So obviously that's in the northeast corner of the state. And this one is about the Italian bride. Among the graves of mobsters and bishops in Mount Caramel Cemetery lies Julia Bacola. For those intrigued by the supernatural, she is better known as the Italian Bride. A woman whose body was exhumed and mysteriously found in near-perfect condition, the site has since become a local legend. Julia's grave is marked today by a life-size statue of the unfortunate woman in her wedding dress, a stone reproduction of the wedding photo that is mounted on the front of her monument. While a beautiful monument there's nothing about it to suggest that anything weird ever occurred in connection to it however once you know the history behind the site it soon realized that this is one of the weirdest tales in chicago's annals of the unknown julia was born on june the 6th 1891 in italy her father george passed away in 1913 and her mother philomena emigrated to the u.s with her daughter they traveled to the west side of chicago with three other Bacola children, Henry, Joseph, and Rosalia, were already settled. In June 1920, Julia married Matthew Petta at Holy Rosary Church on North Damon Avenue. Julia became pregnant soon after the wedding, but complications occurred, and on March the 17th, 1921, Julia died while giving birth to her son, Filippo. Because of the Italian tradition that dying in childbirth made the woman a type of martyr, Julia was buried in white, the martyr's color. Her wedding dress also served as her burial gown, and with her dead infant tucked into her arms, the two were laid to rest in a single coffin at Mount Caramel Cemetery. Philomena Bucola was unconsolable over her daughter's death. Shortly after Julia was buried, Philomena began to experience strange and terrifying dreams every night. In these nightmares, she envisioned Julia telling her that she was still alive and needed her help. For the next six years, the dreams plagued Philomena, and she began trying, without success, to have her daughter's grave opened and her body exhumed. She was unable to explain why she needed to do this. She only knew that she should. Finally, through sheer persistence, her request was granted, and a sympathetic judge passed down an order for Julia's exhumation. In 1927, six years after Julia's death, The casket was removed from the grave. When it was opened, Julia's body was found to not have decayed at all. In fact, it was said that her flesh was still as soft as it had been when she was alive. A photograph was taken at the time of the exhumation, and it shows Julia's incorruptible body in the casket. Philomena sent out to raise money for a more elaborate tombstone. The finished work would be a grandiose tribute to her dead daughter, a life-size sculpture of Julia on her wedding day. Her mother and other admirers affixed the post-mortem photo of Julia on the front of her grave monument. Below the image is the Italian phrase, Presso dopo six anni morta, which roughly translates to taken six years after death. A photo of Julia in her bridal gown, presumably the inspiration for the statue, was also fastened to the stone. The post-mortem photograph shows a body that appears to be fresh with no discoloration of the skin even after six years. The rotted and decayed appearance of the coffin in the photo, however, bears witness to the fact that it had been underground for some time. Julia appears to be merely sleeping. Her family took the fact that she was found to be so well preserved as a sign from God, and so after collecting the money from other family members and neighbors, they created the impressive monument that stands over her grave to this day. What mysterious secrets rest at the grave of Julia Petta? How could her body have stayed in perfect condition after lying in the ground for six years? Many devout Catholics in the neighborhood believe that Julia's incorruptibility meant that she was a saint. Skeptics scoffed at this idea, claiming that the post-mortem photo must have been taken before she was originally buried, although this doesn't explain the condition of the casket or the decomposition of the infant that is nestled in her arms. Another explanation was attributed to adiposary, also known as corpse wax a waxy substance consisting chiefly of fatty acids and calcium soaps that is formed during decomposition of dead body fat in moist or wet anaerobic conditions. In other words, the shape and state of Julia's body was preserved by a natural process. Others attribute it to the chemical composition of the graveyard soil, though this wouldn't explain why her son decomposed and she didn't. Of course, these explanations did little to dispel the local belief that Julia's preserved body was proof of a miracle, but was it really? There were stories that have since been told about her mother, Philomena, questioning the reality of her dreams. There were those who claimed that she fabricated the entire story as retaliation for a marriage of which she did not approve. She never liked Matthew Petta, the stories say, and this story is given some credence by the fact that Julia's married name does not appear on the grave monument only bucola but even if philomena lied about her nightmares to gain sympathy from the community and to help finance the building of the elaborate monument how does this explain the post-mortem photograph the photo of julia in her casket six years after her death appears to be real it is defied explanation for nearly a century and that's not the end of the odd story reports of unusual activity cover everything from the smell of fresh flowers near the graveside in the dead of winter to the ghostly figure of a woman in white roaming the cemetery or the halls of nearby Proviso West High School in the dead of night. Another legend is that the bride would hitchhike around the cemetery. Reports have been told over the years of ghostly women in white who has been seen wandering the edge of the cemetery where she rests. Stories claim to have seen her in the daytime and at night, and many who know the story of Julia Petta believe that this is her restless spirit. One eerie tale that was told involved a young boy who was accidentally left behind at the cemetery, not far from Julia's grave. When they returned to Mount Caramel to look for him, they saw him holding the hand of a dark-haired young woman in a white dress. When the boy ran towards his parents, the woman in white disappeared. The story of the Italian bride lives on today. It's the story of a woman who became more famous in death than she ever was in life, a prime ingredient of many eerie tales. Now, this next one, folks, is one of the strangest cryptid cases I've ever heard of. And this is the Tuttle Bottoms Monster. And this is from the southeast corner of the state. The legend in this case comes from the rough, mosquito infested swamplands north of Harrisburg, Illinois, on the Saline River watershed, where for years there have been reports of something decidedly odd in the dim wilderness. The Tuttle Bottoms Monster of Saline County has been haunting the swampy areas of the Saline River for generations. This strange creature is not your typical swamp monster, lacking reptilian features, with mammalian features instead. Southern Illinois has long been known for its reports of monsters and strange happenings. Tuttle Bottoms is known to have had its share of strange creatures. The Tuttle Bottoms monster was first reported in the 1960s in Tuttle Bottoms near Harrisburg. On the north outskirts of Harrisburg is the section of town referred to as Doris Heights, the middle fork of the Saline River passes through the woods of this scenic area. Hunters and people would park along the road in that area and would end up making frantic calls later to police and sheriff departments reporting a large furry animal that resembled an overgrown anteater. Others said that the creature resembled a large bear. Strange tracks were often found nearby. The Tuttle Bottoms monster is described as gigantic, being at least eight feet long. His most distinct feature is a long snout like that of an anteater. Some report that the beast is bipedal, while others have spotted it walking on four legs. The animal is said to be somewhat resemblative of a bear, as a hulking, bristly furred beast. Although the word monster is in its name, there are no reports of attacks. In fact, the creature seems to innocuously go about its business when spotted instead of running away. This lack of fear of humans is often mentioned in reports of the Tuttlebottoms monster. The creature is legendary in Illinois, with many frantic reports coming from the area. Over the course of 28 years, the police chief of Saline County recalled personally receiving over 50 reports of this strange animal. Some conspiracy theorists believe that this creature was crafted by scientists working for the government, then intentionally released into the area. Others believe the Tuttle Bottoms monster may actually be a relic population of a prehistoric anteater species. Virgil Smith, founder of the animal research organization Shadows of the Shawnee, has opened his own investigation into the monster and thinks he has a clue as to what it may be. Smith is hesitant to say much more without further evidence, but he believes the creature has an actual is an actual animal released by the federal government and that another such creature was reported in Massac County. It stood on two legs, was hairy, close to swampy river areas. A couple had the animal walk up to them, Smith said. It was more a description of a primate. The animal was not scared of humans. Smith said a former employee of the U.S. Department of Agriculture confirmed to him the department had launched an investigation into the Tuttle Bottoms monster. The man also told him a story about the origin of the Massac County creature. Smith believes that origin could be the same as the fabled Tuttle Bottom monster and that it is a legitimate creature, not a monster out of myth. Smith believes the animals were released and have likely long, long ago died. Smith is hoping to receive information from anyone who has had an encounter with the monster. This report is curious, as Smith claims the creature was actually released by the federal government, which begs the question of why. Why would the government willingly release such a creature into this area? To what end? In the end, we are left with a rather bizarre case within the annals of cryptozoology. What was this thing? And did it ever really exist at all? It seems on the surface something very much like a Bigfoot, yet with enough physical and behavioral differences to classify it as something else entirely. Was this some sort of undiscovered species, an escaped exotic, a government experiment, or something else altogether? It seems we may never know, and the case of the Tuttle Bottoms monster remains a rather unique and obscure addition to the menagerie of weird creatures and monsters populating the field of cryptozoology. Now, the next one, folks, is from Champaign-Urbana, which is in the east-central part of the state. And this is a very brief entry. And this one is called the U of I Wanderer. According to legend, a woman died in the U of I, so that's University of Illinois, swimming pool that used to be housed in the current English building on campus. Whether it was a suicide or an accident is unknown. Some say she committed suicide upon finding out she was pregnant with an unplanned child. Now she shows up in the building late at night, appearing and disappearing, while students and faculty look on in shock and horror. Now Bigfoot, folks, I know that's been done to death. But, while it's not unique to Illinois, there have been more reported Bigfoot sightings in the land of Lincoln than in any other state east of the Mississippi River, and I didn't realize there were so many Bigfoot sightings in the state. More of the sightings occurred in the southern and central Illinois than in the north, as you can expect because, especially in the south, you've got a lot of wooded areas and it's a much hillier area, more rivers, and it, it would be easier for something to hide. Now on that, the next one comes from East Central Illinois, and this is the tale of the Farmer City Monster. When one hears a Bigfoot, one of two thoughts immediately come to mind. A large lumbering four-wheel drive vehicle popular at state fairs, or a large lumbering ape-man like Beast, That roams the Pacific Northwest. Rarely would one think of running into one on your trip to town or driving across the plains of Illinois, but consider the year 1970 in Illinois. It was in July of 1970 that four teens parked at a popular Lover's Lane woods area near Farmer City and received the fright of their lives when a huge hairy humanoid with piercing yellow eyes decided to see what was going on in their car. After the creature was scared away by a flashlight, the terrified girls demanded to be taken home immediately. The boys, who I would assume were not impressed by being cockblocked by a boogeyman, returned to investigate and again encountered the creature. Even with the windows closed, its stench permeated the vehicle. They didn't stay for long. The boys led local police to the area, but a search turned up only a much flattened area of foliage. This has been hypothesized to be its nest. During the next two weeks, multiple sightings of the creature were made around the area, including one sighting by a Farmer City police officer. A week after this sighting, the creature was spotted 20 miles southwest in Weldon Springs State Park, near Clinton, Illinois. It was bathing in a lake, but fled to dense woods when it realized it was spotted. Days later, the creature migrated 15 miles north to Hayworth, Illinois, where it was spotted late at night crouching by the side of a country back road. It jumped and fled when the car slowed down to observe it. The startled observer described it as ape-like, still seemingly on the move. The beast was, 10 days later, witnessed by a team of construction workers outside of Waynesville, Illinois, 10 miles west of Hayworth. It sprinted across the road from woods to woods in front of their van near dusk. Another Waynesville resident reported seeing it too within days. But then after that, no more reports or sightings were ever made. So folks... One thing that you may not know, if you're not much into the whole Bigfoot phenomenon, especially in parts of the Midwest and the South, Bigfoot is described as more of a skunk ape, and it has a real horrific smell around it. Now, I don't know who listening has been around skunks, but they have a real stench and a lingering smell once they've shot their scent glands, and that's the similar smell that you know people say that these creatures give off. Now, what I find interesting about all those sightings is you see they were sighted not far away from each other, so if this was a real creature on the move, it could easily move, you know, 10 miles in 10 days, 15 miles in a few days, you know, it's not not like people saw it 500 miles away the next day or something like that. So I do find that one as quite interesting, and that's another one that I hadn't heard of until doing the research. Now the next one for you folks comes from Byron which is in the far north-central part of the state. And this is The Ghost Lady at Kennedy Hill Road. It was a few weeks before Christmas 1980. Kim Anderson turned down Kennedy Hill Road and headed for home after attending church on early Sunday morning. Snow drifted across the country road, and ice glistened on the barren fields. Without warning, she noticed a young woman, around the same age as herself, walking down the road towards her driveway. The woman had long blonde hair and strangely wore a pair of light-colored shorts. Kim pulled her car into her driveway and ran into the house. She threw open the curtains on the front room window to see if the woman was going to come up the driveway. She didn't. Instead, she continued walking towards Byron. Kim didn't think much of the encounter after that until she began to hear the rumors. Between mid-December and early January, dozens of people reported seeing a young woman In various stages of dress walking down Kennedy Hill Road. By January the 20th, 1981, the sightings had reached a fevered pitch. Wild reports circulated around Ogle County and motorists parked their cars in the frigid temperatures along the rural narrow roads to catch a glimpse of what became known as the Phantom Lady of Kennedy Hill Road. Newspaper reports reached as far away as Chicago and the Rockford Register Star ran five consecutive articles on the sightings. Kim Anderson was one of the first to spot the scantily-clad woman, but other reports soon followed. Register Star correspondent Diane Motes diligently collected dozens of eyewitness accounts from what she described as credible regular folks, not the kind you would think would make up something like this. Years after the sighting, she told Bill Rowe of the Rockford magazine each of them claimed to have seen the woman walking alongside the road. By the time they stopped to see if she was okay, she had disappeared. The woman was always described as being inappropriately dressed for the weather, and occasionally even barefoot. Explanations for the phantom were as diverse as the, and as strange as the situation warranted. One of the most popular theories among local teenagers was that the phantom lady was the ghost of a woman who was buried in a nearby cemetery that had been plowed over. She now prowled the road, searching for her grave. Another explanation, put forward by Mary Elson of the Chicago Tribune, was that the lady was a mentally disabled girl who had gone missing from her home in Oregon, Illinois, around the same time the sightings began. She reportedly had, seen and had been seen in Rockford, but had disappeared before police arrived, the Tribune reported. But the Kennedy Hill Phantom had been seen at various times between December the 10th and January the 15th. How could the missing girl have survived outside on her own for that long? So that's another fascinating one, folks. And... You know, as we get into some of the urban legends in that, the Lone Lady Haunting a Country Road does seem to be in a lot of different places. But this one was seen by a lot of people over, you know, in in a time frame over a month. So that is another fascinating one for you. Now, the next one here is quite short, and this one is from Quincy, which is in the west central of the state, and it borders the Mississippi River. Now, for those of you who don't know what a levee is, a levee is generally stone and dirt that's built up to protect a town from flooding from the river. So think of it as a seawall for those of you who haven't been along some of these big rivers. And this one is called the Levee Walker of Quincy. According to qtown.info, there are a few different ghost stories or legends of the levee walker. One such tale takes place when the levee was first being constructed, and a husband had found out one of his co-workers was having an affair with his wife. So depending on who you talk to, either the body of the husband or the body of the co-worker is buried under the levee. The story goes on to say that if you find yourself walking the levee at night, you might see a ball of light, which is supposedly the man trying to have you help him put his body to rest. Another levee walker urban legend takes place in the 1980s. The story is about teenagers hanging out by the levee at night, doing stuff that teenagers should not be doing. An old man that lived nearby was tired of the constant partying, so he decided to do something about it. He dressed up in black and was going to scare the teenagers, which he did. One of the frightened teens then jumped in the car, slammed on the gas, and ran the old man over. When the teenager went back the next day to see what they ran over, all they saw was a broken lantern. Now to my friends at the Quite Unusual podcast, Noel and Nicole, I know that you've got a thing about witches and about them being persecuted. So I've got a few witch tales uh, within the state of Illinois for you that I picked out just for you. Now, this one is quite an interesting little tale. And this comes from the east central part of the state. And this one is called the Chesterfield Witch. Chesterville is a small town that no longer appears on maps of the state. The village still exists, though, and is located just west of Arcola, which is in the heart of Illinois Amish country. This community, that consists of no more than a few dozen houses, is located southeast of Decatur and west of Arcola. Within the neatly trimmed grounds of the Chesterville Cemetery, an old oak tree stands at the edge of the woods that separate the graveyard from the river. The peculiar thing about this tree is the iron fence that surrounds it, and the old stone marker that no longer bears a name. According to legend, this is the grave of a woman who turned up dead under suspicious circumstances after being accused of witchcraft in the early 1900s after she challenged the conservative views of the local Amish church leaders. Rumors quickly spread through the community that she practiced witchcraft, was a servant of the devil, and worse, soon after she disappeared. A short time after she vanished, the woman was discovered dead in a farmer's field. Regardless of what may have happened, The authorities ruled that her death was from natural causes. The body was placed in the local funeral home, and people from all over the countryside came to view the witch's body. They were terrified that she would come back to life. The town planted a tree over her grave to trap her spirit inside and prevent her from taking revenge on them. If the tree should die, she is free to wreak vengeance upon those who wronged her. Visitors claim to have seen her spirit standing over the grave and staring at the tree. Some believe that the story was made up to keep young Amish girls in line when they try to question authority. Since that time, the witch has allegedly appeared to passers by and visitors to the cemetery. Visitors claim to have seen her spirit standing over the grave and staring at the tree. Thanks to the tree, though, she is confined to the area around her grave. A number of stories have been told about this cemetery, involving actual sightings and reports that lead some to believe the story of the Chesterville. Chesterville Witch may not be just a folktale after all. Here's the really creepy part. A couple of years ago, someone girdled the tree. So what that means is that they cut a circle around the tree to kill it. And if you look at photos you can find online, you can see the cut line around the base of the tree. So obviously they're trying to slowly kill the tree. And who knows what will happen after this. So that's quite a fascinating tale, folks. Take it for what it is, but... As we all know, oftentimes back at, at, at that time in history, you know, people who were considered to be too noisy for their own good would go missing, but especially women. So, yeah, it is, if there is any truth to that story and that it was a young lady who was basically killed for being outspoken, it is a real tragedy. But as I say, there's no name on the tombstone anymore that you can read. And that's often the case with some of these urban legends. Now the next one comes from the southwestern part of the state and this one is called the Stump Pond Serpent. Between 1879 and 1968, fishermen in Perry County spun yarns about a serpent that dwelled in the murky waters of Stump Pond. The creature was described as having a thick green body with black fins. It was large enough to rock boats. The mysterious creature was first encountered one evening in the summer of 1879. A local man named Paquette was fishing on the lake one night when he said something rushed through the water beneath him with enough force to to rock his boat. Frightened, he immediately returned to shore and vowed that he would never venture out away from the banks again after dark. The following summer in 1880, two local miners claimed that they saw a 12-foot-long serpent in the water. They said that it was dark green and had a body that was as thick as a telegraph pole. The monster put in a brief appearance and then vanished back into the depths the miners meanwhile decided that they were no longer in the mood for fishing reports continued to come in from stump pond for many years in 1965 alan dunmer a retired miner was in his boat on the shallow waters of the pond when something startled the creature he believed that the monster was hiding in the muddy area near the shore but some sort of noise caused it to stir It passed directly under his boat as it headed for deeper water, and as it did, the serpent hit the boat with its head. It liked to have turned the boat clear over, Dunmer said. Dunmer had seen a monster or monsters in the pond before. I think there is more than one of the critters in that pond, he said. I've seen them so, so near the surface that their back fins were sticking out of the water. Another man who was waiting in the pond said that he stumbled upon something sleeping under the algae that covered the water. As it sped away from him, he stated that he thought the creature looked like a large alligator. Herb Heath, a Dequoin businessman who also saw the creature, claimed that the monster was as big as I am, maybe bigger. The stories of the stump pond monster continued until 1968, when the water was partially drained from the lake and the fish cleared out of it with electric stunners. When the lake was partially drained, locals discovered catfish that weighed more than 30 pounds, So it is possible that the stump pond serpent was a giant catfish. And look, folks, I mean, we've often heard stories of people seeing things in lakes, rivers, and the ocean and exaggerating size. And look, I've been in some of those small lakes and ponds in in Illinois in the Midwest. And with the muddy water, it's very difficult to see anything. So I can understand where it might be, you know, sizes might get misconstrued but a 30 pound catfish is not all that big in comparison to someone who says it was as big as them but to me it does match a pretty close approximation of being the size of a telegraph pole in, in width and you know having these fins and this uh, green color so nevertheless it's an interesting little tale now on to the next one here for you and this is one that has actually got a basis a real basis in a modern tragedy and this is the tale of the airtight bridge, which is in East Central Illinois. The legacy of an unsolved, gruesome murder rests beneath the spans of this historic bridge. By all obvious appearances, it is a quiet, metal bridge over the modest embarrassed River. Listed on the National Register of Historical Places, it is just the sort of peaceful, bucolic spot one might imagine in rural Coles County, Illinois. But this bridge has a dark secret. Known as the airtight bridge, because of an unnatural stillness encountered while crossing it, the most disturbance this bridge saw was when it was used by local teens as a drinking spot. But on October the 19th, 1980, a gruesome discovery was made. Missing head, hands, and feet, a woman's body was found floating near the bridge in the Embarrassed River. Using divers to look for clues and other appendages, little was found and the woman's identity was impossible to determine. Laid to rest in the Charleston Mound Cemetery under the name Jane Doe, strangers who remember the case occasionally traveled to her grave and left flowers or other tokens of their sympathy. Now, there is some good news to this one, folks. There was eventually a break in the case. In 1992, the identity of the victim was determined using DNA analysis. Diana Marie Riordan Small disappeared from her Illinois home over 100 miles away and had been and had never been heard from again. Determined as the Jane Doe, the headstone was replaced. So they replaced her headstone with her real name. Sorry, folks. Now, the update from 2017 is that according to a press release from the Coles County Sheriff's Office, Thomas A. Small, 70, the husband of the victim, was arrested in connection with her murder on March the 2, 2nd, 2017. It is believed that. Mr. Small confessed to the murder after being questioned again more recently. Many people report eerie feelings in this area still. Those rusted burgundy trestles that span the embarrass along the winding road in rural Coles County will always elicit a tingle among the spines of visitors, as well as a supernatural sense that something very wrong happened there. Well, folks, something very wrong did happen there. And as far as I'm concerned you know, humans are the greatest monsters on the planet, you know, for all of these tales of cryptids and everything else. What one man or one, you know, person will do to another person is pretty horrific. And I'm really glad that there was actually a bit of closure to this case for this young lady who was murdered and decapitated. I also found out in looking at that and uh, uh, investigating that case, that it was actually not too far from where I went went to school and where i lived and grew up and spent many of my formative years so it is very interesting that some of these places when you look back through time you go wow i wasn't that far away i mean i was probably only 40 50 miles from that area at any any given time so the next one here folks is from north central part of illinois and it's north of peoria and this one is the Pertlewitz monster in 1950 fred Pertlewitz farmed Peoria County land between Princeville and Laura. pertlewitz told Peoria County Sheriff's deputies that over a few weeks, 40 pigs, four cows, 26 sheep, and countless chickens had vanished. Now folks, if you don't know much about farms and animals and that, that's a lot to have go missing, especially, you know, a pig is not a small animal. What sort of creature could boast such an appetite other than a ravenous monster? Yet one night he told police he'd set out a deer carcass as bait. In the dark he caught a fleeting glimpse of the beast, which after spotting Pertlewitz, bolted away with a loud roar. Police and hunters, including some on horseback, searched the area. The goal, according to the sheriff, was to settle the matter once and for all. The searchers found tracks as large as a man's hand, but no other clues. As quickly as it reared its ugly head, the Pertlewitz monster vanished. There were no further sightings until 2017. A former state-licensed expert in nuisance wildlife control, whose dad bought the land from Purtlewitz and who still lives in the area, came forward. He described an account by two friends who say something weird is in the Spoon River Bottoms in Stark County, just nor- north of the former Purtlewitz farm. On Facebook, the wildlife expert posted, the Purtlewitz monster has arisen. The mysterious killer seems to have migrated north and settled in the Spoon River Bottoms. Actually, his friends reported having seen a mountain lion at close range. That's not unheard of. Over the years, the Peoria County Sheriff's Office has received occasional reports of big cats in that area, as well as in other spots. Could the 1950 Purtlewitz monster have been a cougar? Could the 2017 mountain lion be the Pertlewitz monster? Perhaps time will tell, but if it, whatever it might be, Lies dormant for 67 years between findings and sightings. We might be in for a long wait. Well, folks, uh, mountain lions are something that I spent a lot of time around as a young man. And they definitely have an appetite. But look, still to me, for one of them to eat that amount in, you know, a week or two weeks, that is quite a bit of fresh meat to eat. So, um, you know, I do find it quite interesting. Maybe there was more than one mountain lion in the area. Maybe there was a breeding pair or something like that. Now, folks, the next one here is from the northeast corner of the state, and it's south of Chicago, but it's up against the Indiana border in northeast Illinois. And this is a really fascinating one that, again, another one I'd never heard of. And this is the Watsika Wonder. This unbelievably terrifying story from Illinois is absolutely true. While many do not believe that this mystifying tale, is completely accurate the details of what went down make it difficult to deny this true scary story hails from an incredibly creepy state and it may make you even more weirded out about living there stay tuned for this historical and horrifying tale that will really make you think keep listening for all the absolutely true details if you dare our tale known as the watsika wonder begins in the middle of the 19th century with a girl named mary Roth who suffered from seizures and violent fits. Doctors believe she was insane and had her placed in a mental hospital at the age of 19, where she passed away in 1865. Watsika is a small town in the northwest part of the state, sorry, it's northeast, not northwest, near Indiana. This true story now shifts to another young girl, Lorency Venom, who was born one year prior to Mary's death. She, too, began having seizures and spells that would last up to eight hours at a time. She spoke of things she saw in heaven and hell, such as the spirit of a deceased brother. She was able to recall parts of the world she'd never been to, and began talking in different voices and languages during her trances. Strangely, Laurency never remembered what had happened after she came out of a trance. Doctors had no explanation and suggested that the girl be placed in a mental institution. With few resources for adequate treatment, Mental institutions were more like a prison in those days. It was at this time that Asa Roth, the father of Mary, urged them not to. Roth had been following the Venom family story and told them he believed his daughter, or so, believed their daughter was suffering from the same spiritual problem as his own daughter. He urged them not to lock Laurency up, as he had made that mistake years prior. Instead, Dr. E. Winchester Stevens was brought in to evaluate the girl. The doctor determined it was spiritual possession. Though many spirits seemed to be able to access access Laurency, she was asked to focus on one. The spirit claimed to be none other than that of Mary Roth. The spirit, who everyone thought was Mary, knew everything about the Roth family. She recognized neighbors and other relatives, but did not recognize any of Laurency's family members. She lived as Mary with the Roth family for several months, in a sense giving them back their daughter, for a while. The community was very displeased with these happenings. Many believed it was a hoax and laughed behind their backs. The girl returned home in May of the next year as Laurency, and she never experienced symptoms again. There are still many who believe she was not actually possessed and that she was either faking it or legitimately mentally ill. If that was the case, how could she know languages, people, and things she'd never seen or heard before while growing up in the fields of Illinois? And again, folks, remember, this is the mid-1860s. This is not even the 1960s, you know. Uh, You did not have access to things from other areas, other countries, all that readily, without going to a library or something like that. It's not like you had the internet at your fingertips. So, nonetheless, you know, that is a very interesting tale. And a lot of it dovetails into some of the reincarnation tales you've heard me discuss on the program before especially the fact that she knew so much about Roth's family as opposed to her own family, you know, when she said she was under the control of, or, you know, was under the, uh, you know, the influence of the spirit. So look, that's a really fascinating one, folks. And again, yet another one that I had not heard of. In fact, believe it or not, most of these I had not heard of until researching them for the program. This next one, folks, comes to us from Chicago specifically the west side of Chicago so again uh, Noel and Nicole you listen up and this is the infamous devil baby at whole house in 1889 29 year old Jane Adams opened the doors of whole house in the west side of Chicago a slum teeming with impoverished immigrants here she led a group of young reformers and establishing programs to improve the neighborhood within four years the settlement house boasted an array of clubs and functions, a day nursery, gymnasium, dispensary, playground, and a cooperative boarding house for single working women. By 1907, the complex had 13 buildings and a children's summer camp outside of the city. Hull House made Jane Addams an international figure. And now, you know, obviously for those of you who believe in it, 13 is not a lucky number, so I'll continue on with the tale. According to the legend, a woman gave birth to a child who was fathered by the devil at Hull House in western Chicago. The child, or half-devil, was disgusting to the mother, so she abandoned it. Jane Adams apparently raised the child in the attic, where it died at an early age. But people reported being able to see a devil's face in the second story of the Hull House windows. Also, ghostly mists and monk-like figures have been seen on the sk- staircase within Hull House. Starting in the summer of 1913, Jane Adams and the residents of the Whole House settlement grappled with an onslaught of visitors who came seeking the Devil Baby, an imagined infant who was rumored to have been born out of a fatherly curse in the neighborhood and hidden away at Hull House. The child was said to possess pointed ears, cloven hooves, horns, scales, and even a pointed tail, all the markings of the Devil. And hey, you know, if you're going to go all in with a story, why wouldn't it have all those things? Now the following, folks, is an excerpt from the October 1916 edition of The Atlantic. The knowledge of the existence of the Devil Baby burst upon the residents of Hull House one day when three Italian women, with an excited rush through the door, demanded that that he be shown to them. No amount of denial convinced them that he was not there, for they knew exactly what he was like, with his cloven hooves, his pointed ears, and diminutive tail. Moreover, the devil baby had been able to speak as soon as he was born and was most shockingly profane. The three women were but the forerunners of a veritable multitude. For six weeks, the streams of visitors from every part of the city and suburbs to this mythical baby poured in all day long and so far into the night that the regular activities of the settlement were almost swamped. The Italian version, with a hundred variations, dealt with a pious Italian girl married to an atheist. Her husband vehemently tore a holy picture from the bedroom wall, and I heard it was the Virgin Mary, saying that he would quite as soon have a devil in the house as that photo, whereupon the devil incarnated himself in their coming child. As soon as the devil baby was born, he ran about the table, shaking his finger in deep reproach at his father, and snatched the cigar from his mouth to smoke himself, who finally caught him and in fear and trembling brought him to a whole house. When the residents there, in spite of the baby's shocking appearance, wished to save his soul, took him to church for baptism, they found that the shawl was empty and the devil baby, felled from the holy water, ran lightly over the backs of the pews. Now, for those of you who don't know much about Jane Addams, folks, and again, I must admit I didn't, uh, she earned the 1931 Nobel Peace Prize for her work in helping the poor. She repeatedly denied the existence of the devil baby and in fact, a large portion of her autobiography is devoted to refuting the claims. Despite these claims, though, to this day, the tale is still one of the most well-known and oft-told tales of Chicago lore. Then, now, the next one here, folks, comes from the southwestern part of the state, and this is from the Dug Hill Road. The first story concerning Doug Hill is a classic haunting rooted in the past. In 1863, Union Army deserters ambushed and killed a provost-marshal named Welsh along Dug Hill Road. There are two versions of the story, one involving three deserters, the other involving a dozen or more. In the second version, Welsh's own friend betrayed him and led him into the ambush. Since then, his ghost has been seen along the road. Another legend concerns a man named Bill Smith, who reportedly witnessed a spectral wagon pass over his head. A third story pertaining to the Dug Hill area concerns a creature known as the Booger. The Booger, or the Booger Man, was something cooked up by parents who want to scare their children. Two men have reportedly seen this Booger along Dug Hill Road in the past. The creature appears to be 9 to 11 feet tall, but a man who wears black pants, a white shirt, and a long scarf. No one has yet come forward to explain where this creature found someone to tailor his gigantic clothes. So again, folks, uh, that's a very interesting short one from that area. Now, the next one I definitely heard of, and this is one of the more famous tales out of Illinois. So again, I'm not sure if my friends over at the Quite Unusual Pod have heard of this one, but this is from uh, Lawndale, which is in the central part of the state, and it's on the highway between Springfield and Bloomington. And this is the tale of the Lawndale Thunderbird. The evening of July the 25th, 1977 was just like any other hot summer evening for the Lowe family of Lawndale, Illinois. The smell of sizzling beef and grilled vegetables permeated the air as the adults kicked back on lawn chairs and the kids tussled on the family's expansive yard outside. The following is Ruth Lowe's harrowing eyewitness account of a particularly frightening avian encounter as written by Jerry D. Coleman of Cryptozoology.com at approximately 8.10, the Lowe's were cleaning up after their alfresco dinner. The kids still playing outside, and that's when it happened. Ruth, the matriarch of the low clan, was clearing up in the kitchen when she couldn't see her children. She heard a piercing scream and knew it was none other than her 10-year-old son Marlin. When she ran outside to see what the commotion was, she was stunned. Two massive birds flying in tight wingtip-to-wingtip formation, were chasing her son Marlin, pecking and clawing at his shoulders. As Ruth ran to Marlin's aid, the larger of the two birds sunk their claws into his shirt, fully lifting the 56-pound boy off the ground. But the birds were no match for a defensive mother. Ruth kept attacking the bird, and it dropped her now terrified son to the ground, after carrying him a distance of over 35 feet. When the Lowe's went to the police, they were laughed out of the precinct, one of the cops allegedly said to Ruth, over the guffaws of his fellow officers, Now let me get this straight. A giant bird attacked your nephew? In her statement to the police, Ruth described the bird as such. It had a white ring around its half-foot-long neck. The rest of the body was very black. The bird's bill was six inches in length and hooked at the end. The claws on the feet were arranged with three front, one in the back. Each wing Less the body was four feet at the very least. The entire length of the bird's body from beak to tail feather was approximately four and one-half feet. Obviously, as, as with any eyewitness accounts of cryptids, Ruth and Marlon Lowe's story was met with a healthy dose of skepticism and even ridicule. As their story was circulated around the local press, Marlon became known to his schoolmates as Bird Boy, and dead pigeons were tossed onto the Lowe's family porch. Had Ruth not come outside at that very moment, she was sure the bird would have carried her son away. But there may have been some shred of truth to the Lowe's story, and that's where it gets complex. Legends abound in Illinois about mysterious giant birds, dating all the way back to the Cahokia tribe, an advanced and largely urbanized chiefdom on the banks of the Mississippi River that petered out around the 13th century. The Cahokia tribe called these birds Thunderbirds, for the sound they make when they flap their giant wings. Considered to be highly intelligent, these creatures alternated between preying on and assisting the tribe whenever they pleased. The possibilities for explanation are, like with most cryptids, endless, but one thing is for certain. For better or for worse, ferocious monsters of the unknown have captured people's imaginations throughout history. There's something marvelous about the notion that a giant man-eating bird of native lore could still be prowling the skies of the Midwest. And again, my friends at the quite unusual pod did an episode where they talked about some of these Thunderbirds. And I can't remember the name. I, I did see it in passing, looking at this, but they're probably screaming as they listen to this going, John it's this, it's this, but, um, it was in Alton, and it's, uh, uh, I think it's the Pisa bird. But anyway, there are lots of tales of Thunderbirds all over the Midwest and Southwest of the U.S. and other areas, basically anywhere there have been Native American tribes. And last but not least, folks, I've saved this one for you for the end, because everyone loves a good tale like this, and this comes from the very far Northwest corner of the state. And this is the tale of the Wolfman of Chestnut Mountain. Rachel Gendro was driving on a deserted railroad one October night when she decided to take a shortcut through a patch of thick woods. There was a full moon that night, and the road was tinged with an eerie glow. As Gendro chatted with her fiancé, she squinted into the darkness ahead and saw something strange. A massive wolf-like creature was standing upright in the road staring at her with with shimmering white eyes. As Gendro drew closer, the creature leaped from the road and bounded into the woods. What the hell was that? Gendro sputtered. Did you see it? I don't know what it was, but it had dog legs, said her fiancé. Gendro looked into the rearview mirror and had another scare. The beast had circled behind her car in a flash and was watching her again with those glittering white eyes as she and her fiancé sped away. Jendro didn't know it at the time, but she had spotted the Wolfman of Chestnut Mountain, an elusive creature that people have sighted in rural Illinois for years. Roaming the wilderness around Galena, Illinois, about 14 miles east of Dubuque, Iowa, this is not a classic werewolf. It is more a wolf that can stand upright. It has been spotted several times throughout the last couple of decades, the most sensational time being an attack on a psychologist in 2010. Though there have been sightings in the Galena region and southeast Wisconsin dating back to the early 1980s, it is said that the four legs have almost human-like hands, like those a raccoon possesses. The creature is said to stand about five feet tall or a little more and is always seen as cunning, feral, and savage. Not to be confused with the dogman of McHenry or the many dog people reported throughout Michigan since the 19th century, it stands on two legs, has glowing white eyes, the latter characteristic is anomalous. Such beasts typically have red eyes. One thing is certain. To this day, people continue to have run-ins with this terrifying creature. Is it an elaborate hoax, or something unexplained in the northern Illinois wilderness? It is thought that there have been many more local sightings, but that people keep keep them private to avoid mockery and ridicule. Scoff if you must, but I for one would not want to be out alone in this corner of the state when the sun goes down. Well, folks, hopefully you've enjoyed these tales from the land of Lincoln. Join me next week for 15 more from the Prairie State. And as always, I leave you with the quote from Art Bell. A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Talk to you soon.